213 Things About Me, a podcast about thinking, living and dying, from an autistic point of view. Trigger warning. This podcast contains opinions and ingredients which might induce disquiet in the minds of some listeners. Episode 5. Impossible Things. 62. I cannot, under any circumstances, do two things at once. 63. I reverse numbers or mix up even numbers with other even numbers or numbers divisible by three with other numbers divisible by three. 64. I frequently can't remember people's names, but I can almost always remember whether it starts or ends with a vowel what consonant it begins with, how many letters are in it, or if it's a biblical or a saint's name. I've always had this unusual set of affairs when it comes to what I believe. When I explain what I believe to people, they don't believe me. It's not just that people can't believe what I believe. It's not that my mythology is so outlandish that it's unacceptable. People literally think it's impossible while I think believing anything other than what I believe is impossible. I'm really at an impasse, so I try not to talk about it. And then I was introduced to theory of mind. The first time I read a little description of theory of mind, I was particularly drawn to this idea that some part of the brain was in charge of goals, intentions, hopes and beliefs. And it was the belief part that struck me most. And that's when I began to think, Perhaps only people who have a unique theory of mind set up could believe what I believe. I believe everything. And not only that, but I don't believe anything at the same time. My belief is like Schrodinger's cat. God is dead and God is also not dead. We have no free will whatsoever, but we also have free will. There is no afterlife, but there is an eternal afterlife. Morality is both universal and relative. All of them to me are completely, without doubt, true and untrue. I told someone this recently, as I have now decided that it is a perfectly acceptable thing to try and share, even if no one believes me. And his first response was, ah, so you're agnostic? To which I said, absolutely not. Agnostic means that you don't know. But I know I know that both things are true. And he said, oh, well, you just haven't decided yet. And in my typical fashion, I consented that this might be the case. But as far as I could tell, I was completely decided. It seems to me that I have always felt this way about the state of things, but I have spent years finding the way to say it. I used to just say that I was an atheist, because I figured by most people's standards... That was the most honest description. I was also under the impression that atheists were not dogmatic, which made it the most alluring of claims. However, I recently learned, thanks to YouTube, this is most definitely not the case. When pressed, I used to say that I believed all possibilities were true. Not equally likely, but all true. I'd say that I have dual state theology. 65. I have gone to many churches and studied many religions, starting at age 7. 66. 
I have strong opinions and rigid theologic ideas, which all involve, in a sense, not believing in anything. 67. I am an atheist and always have been. 68. I press my hands over my ears or eyes when I am extremely upset, as if trying to block sensory stimulation. I'd lock the door at 10 in the morning. I didn't want to be disturbed. Well, Debbie didn't find me until 11 that night. If I'd have known she was going to be that late, I wouldn't have hung around so long. I could have had a nice cup of tea and fixed my hair properly. I've never been able to do a thing with it. Not that I even knew you could until recently. <laughs> Choosing hair products now. There's one of life's great mysteries. When they found me, there was a huge commotion. Police came, a doctor, undertakers, all that stuff. And Debbie, she was in her element. That element being the one of drama. Debbie wanted to marry me, but I turned her down because I wanted to have children. In the regular way. The idea of unknown sperm and a turkey baster did not appeal to me in the slightest. Also, I had other plans. Obviously. Apparently, the coroner was impressed with the quality of the noose. I pride myself on my craft skills and, even though I say so myself, my rope work has always been excellent. It took me two days to get the noose perfect. It worked a treat. It's interesting that lots of people who couldn't give a damn about me when I was alive were suddenly expressing an abundance of affection, a veritable smorgasbord of enthusiastic grief. It seems everyone loves you when you're dead. I mean... My feelings for someone are not dependent on them being alive or dead. I'd miss someone if they were close and I liked them and they died, obviously. But it makes no sense to feel differently about someone just because they're dead. Now, in order to feel better about my death, my friends and some others I hardly knew held a lovely wake out by the tea house in the evening with a fire and whiskey and music. Except it's not really a tea house, more of a hut over on the waste ground near to where I lived. Uh, a bunch of people, not many, about 20. <laughs> All playing my songs as if they were their own. Oh, God. And no doubt playing them excruciatingly badly. Dear Lord, they would have murdered those songs. But most likely it was just an excuse to get completely wasted. All of my various lovers arrived, each thinking they were the only one. And they all met each other. <laughs> I wish I'd seen that. My sister and my dad also turned up which was an unusual occurrence as they never visited me when I was alive. My dad got so drunk that he passed out and fell into the fire. It was all right though, his massive bulk put the fire out, completely. I was very much the apple of my father's eye, which is rather unfortunate because he's a bad-tempered, narcissistic drunk. 
who expects everyone to cope with his temperament while other people's moods just make him furious. He drinks an enormous amount and would have raging tantrums over tiny little things I did wrong. Then he'd get even angrier at me for crying. Later, whenever I see people yelling at their kids to stop crying, it always puzzles me. Why do they expect shouting to stop a child from crying? I remember when my great-gran and my cat died, both on the same day. Well, in fact, what happened was, Gran parked on the cat, squashed it flat, and on seeing what she'd done, she dropped down dead. From a heart attack. So Dad came and stood in front of me and my sister, blocking out Blue Peter on the telly, and said, Your grandmother Crane and your cat are dead. Then he said, I'm off to take a shit. He always told everyone when he was off to do that, which left me with a rather unfortunate habit of telling everyone in the room when I need to urinate. When I was seven, he was yelling at me, screaming, Why are you crying? And I had this small feeling of courage and excitement because I knew why I was crying and I could explain myself. I said, because you're scaring me. He replied, bullshit. 69. I started teaching myself to read when I was three years old. 70. I taught myself addition and subtraction by the time I was four. 71. I started keeping a journal as a child in order to remember how terrible it was to be a child. The thing is, he wasn't all bad. Nobody is. I mean, even Hitler loved his dog. Dad took me on cool camping trips. He let me help with his car restoration projects. He taught me to canoe and he taught me to play cricket. I liked that best of all. It's really complicated and totally pointless. Now, in a game of cricket, there are two main points of interest concerning the flight of the ball. The first is the duration after the bowler releases the ball to when it's either hit or missed by the batsman. And the second is after the collision of the ball with the bat. The batsman's goal is to score as many runs as possible. Therefore, most hits are played close to the ground, making it harder to catch for the fielder. The bowler's main aim is to pitch the ball so the batsman does not hit it to the best of his ability or at all. So a simple equation will tell us that. Oh. Um, anyway, he's not a good guy, but I like him. Not Hitler, my dad. But living with him was like living in a minefield. You never knew what was going to set him off or why. And I always felt responsible for it. Even when he was screaming at mum, I felt like I needed to help him. He was obviously upset and he just needed to take it out on me. I don't know why I thought that last thing precisely, but I did. I spent most of my childhood trying not to upset the six-foot ogre with a blonde mullet who was in charge of my life. When I was ten, mum divorced him, and I remember feeling really relieved, but I still thought it was my fault. 72. The three most common things I heard as a kid were, don't interrupt don't correct adults and look at me when I'm talking to you. 73. 
I did not participate in games of make-believe as a child. I drew, played with building blocks, walked and biked in seclusion, made arduous lists from catalogues, encyclopedias and dictionaries, choreographed dances and memorised song lyrics. 74. As a child, I was frequently described as eight going on 80 or a little adult and very matter of fact. I habitually corrected adults and was nearly humorless. My mother has become a nice person. She found God, which is ironic considering my current condition. She's in for a hell of a shock one of these days. I actually think it was the menopause that made her a nicer woman. Not theology, but biology. Eventually, mum remarried. Bernard, an ex-alcoholic who stayed sober for eight years, then became addicted to heroin, overdosed and died. I loved my parents immensely. I'd talk to them on the phone. I'd go home when bad things happened. I'd remember the last thing they complained about and the next time we spoke, I'd ask them about it. I would call on Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas and birthdays. I don't hold anything against them. I just waited patiently and lovingly for them to be nice to me and I forgave them every stupid thing they ever did. So I guess I learnt to be loving but in a brutal situation. So if I'm offered love, I never believe it. I'm constantly looking for an escape plan and I'm continually expecting to be hated for no reason. When people who are supposed to love you hit you, insult you and throw you out, it's hard not to believe that you've done something wrong, even if there's absolutely no evidence that you have. And the worst thing might be this. In a way, it doesn't feel right that I got out. Some part of me feels guilty, like I should have left but then returned and rescued everyone. But I didn't. I just left. 75. I indexed Beckett's Waiting for Godot once for fun. 76. I don't know when a question is rhetorical. 77. I taught myself calligraphy in part because I was told that my handwriting made me look illiterate and developmentally disabled. I have been seeing a therapist, but all I want to do is make her happy. This is always the problem between me and therapists. Actually, she did fall asleep during one of my sessions, which didn't do much for my self-esteem. I get on these obsessive tracks and for nearly 20 years, it was music. I can see music. I know what a song is supposed to look like. There's geometry inside the melodies that make sense to me. It's definitive. A note is either correct or it isn't. And I know how to play all the notes accurately on a number of instruments. I understand the theory really well and I can learn things extremely quickly, but I finally realised that I couldn't be a musician because it's not enough. You have to be social to be able to entertain. And I hate being on stage. It's such a performance. 
I love writing and singing my little songs, though I'd much prefer it if people didn't watch me when I do. 78. I mistrust the sentiment and motivations for creating and engaging audience participation at musical performances. 79. I cannot maintain eye contact for more than a second and find it unpleasantly intense. 80. I can't look some people in the eye at all. Produced, written and narrated by Richard Butchins. The voice of Rose, formed by Rosa Hoskins. Patrick Mill edited and recorded this podcast. 213 Things About Me is a Think Differently production. This podcast was commissioned by Disability Arts Online a platform led by disabled people to advance disability arts and culture. If you have found this podcast interesting, please subscribe or comment. We can also be found on Twitter.